Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. In Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we, have, we have turned the corner in the Gospel to where Jesus begins to head very resolutely to Jerusalem, anticipating the cross, and that's the context of this passage as well. Jesus is with His disciples, chapter 17, verse 11 says, on the way to Jerusalem. And we're going to drop into a very specific parable this morning, starting at Luke 18, verse 1. Join me as I read. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nonetheless, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Would you please join me as I pray? Father, we do thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you that we've been able to sing great truths to you and to have our souls encouraged with gospel truths this morning. Father, I do pray that you would enable me to serve these dear saints this morning. Father, I pray that your word would go forth in power. I pray that your word would go forth to our hearts and minds and that it would have its intended effect. Lord, we pray that the purpose of this passage would find its purpose in our lives. Lord, that we might learn to always pray and not lose heart. Father, I pray that we would be, by your Spirit's prompting, very attentive to your word, that your word would be illumined to us, and that we would experience the power of your Spirit at work, transforming us by your grace. So much that we have to be grateful for this morning, but we would be so bold, Lord, as to ask for more. God, don't let us be unaffected by your word, but let us be transformed by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, nobody that I know looks forward to waiting. Uh, Think MVA. Think Beltway. Uh, But there are times where we will gladly endure waiting, even put ourselves in the pathway of waiting a situation that involves waiting because we know something great lies ahead. Uh, Maybe you're a roller coaster fan and you've stood through long lines because you know there is that corkscrew turn or that sudden drop that you can't wait to experience. Maybe recently or in the days ahead, you're going to endure long lines in an airport 
crowds in an airport because you can't wait to return to a loved one. Maybe you're experiencing or can look back to a season known as engagement um, when you had much anticipation and endured what seemed to be quite the long wait uh, for the joy that was awaiting you. Uh, the final eight, week, eight weeks of my engagement were both agonizing and exhilarating. I had just relocated uh, to Chicago where my wife Kristen and I were going to soon uh, live out the first years of our marriage together. But the problem was she was still here and I was there and uh, we were apart for the most, most part of those final eight weeks. Uh, and that wait was quite difficult. But that wait delivered big time for my sake. We will wait when we know the good that lies ahead. Waiting as Christians can be tough. At times it can be disheartening. Um, We live in a fallen world, don't we? It's fraught with difficulties and serious disappointments at times. It can be accompanied by profound suffering and loss. When difficulties seem unwilling to go away, unwilling to subside, when we experience those kinds of ongoing setbacks, we can be tempted to lose heart, to lose hope, to lose our joy. And for many of us, our early days as Christians, we can look back on and say, man, I knew joy back then. We had experienced a newfound joy, the joy of knowing that our sins had been forgiven, knowing that we've been brought into relationship with God and he's now our father and Jesus is our savior. And We came into the awareness of this mystery that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and it filled us with joy to know these things. Grace was amazing to us. But at some point in each of our lives, adversity comes upon us. Trials set in and it becomes clear, sometimes painfully clear, that salvation is not a sprint. Salvation is no short race. And no doubt some of you this morning are in some way enduring, enduring a weight, maybe enduring distress, maybe even injustice. It might encourage you to know that the history of Christianity can be traced along a long route of prolonged suffering, injustice, martyrdom. And in that suffering, saints before us have waited for deliverance. Waiting, the children of God have learned to ask, when will deliverance come? And if you study your Bibles and go back to the early chapters, you know that all of this suffering can be traced back to a well-known garden called Eden. Uh, There, Adam and Eve's rebellion ushered in the effects of sin, and our first parents came to know suffering, loss, and even death. The effects of sin set in, and there was, from that point on, an ache awaiting for future deliverance. And we feel the effects of those decisions in the garden. At every point, every disciple, at some point, every disciple will wonder if deliverance will ever come. You know the words of Psalm 13, verse 1? How long, O Lord? Has that ever been a cry of yours? Maybe that's one of your prayers right now. Maybe you're tempted to lose heart. We live in that time period known as the already and the not yet. 
and maybe you've heard that before, but it serves us to meditate on that. Jesus has come. We can sing this morning, and we can taste of joy knowing that Jesus has come. He has paid for our sins on the cross. He has brought about victory through his resurrection from the dead. This is the already of our salvation, but we are not yet with him, and so we live by faith. We wait for the glorious day when Christ will bring us home, and we will see Jesus face to face. And when that wait has ended, we will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed. But here and now in this fallen world, we experience hardship. It's into that reality that we live in that our Savior speaks this parable. The one you may know is the parable of the persistent widow and persistent she was. Through this parable, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's preparing them for the inevitable realities of life in a very fallen world. Jesus calls his disciples to a rugged, persistent faith. A rugged and persistent faith after his departure. A long, sometimes painful, uphill climb to glory. I've been reading uh, The Pilgrim's Progress again recently. If you haven't read that book, I highly commend that book to you. It's the story of the journey of one Christian uh, that John Bunyan wrote while he was in prison in England. He wrote this book, this, this parable, this ongoing uh, parable about the life between here and the celestial city and how God strengthened this believer, Christian, through many difficulties. That is each of our stories to some degree. These disciples needed to be armed with an understanding of God and his salvation that would steady them through coming storms. They were going to experience some serious storms. They needed an understanding of God and the nature of salvation that would keep them trusting, that would keep them hoping, that would keep them waiting and enduring. Jesus cared deeply for their souls, and that's why he shared this parable. His concern was for their hearts. That they might lose heart was his concern. See, it's true that every disciple in every age needs a vibrant knowledge of God if we're to face fierce opposition with relentless faith. We are no exception. In particular, knowing God's commitment to care for his children and to deliver us will fuel our faith through whatever God leads us through. Knowing these things about God will keep us praying as we wait on him, not losing heart. So this parable is designed to deliver the church to a place where we can say confidently, because God's salvation is sure, we have every reason to persevere in prayer. And Grace Church, you're no exception. Our Savior had you in mind when he told this story. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus had you in mind. God knew those he would bring together here in this place, the sufferings you'd walk through together, the need that you'd have to remind one another and those soon to come that while the wait seems long, God's salvation is sure. The one who tells this very story, our Savior, intends to steady us all with this knowledge. God's salvation is sure. Because of that, we have every reason this morning to wait on him. 
This parable exists, and I trust we'll experience this morning, it exists to encourage saints to wait, to wait on the Lord, to wait expectantly, and as we do so, to cultivate a vibrant faith through persevering prayer. So let's dive in. As we look again at this text, uh, we see Luke, divinely inspired, preempts the parable in verse 1. Look again with me. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke is intent on cluing them in, cluing his readers in to the parable's purpose before our Savior even gets a word in. Why is this? You know, so many of the parables, they hold the meaning until the end. Or maybe a later moment when Jesus pulls his disciples aside and wants to bring them in, pull back the veil, so to say, on why he shared what he shared. Why would Luke reveal the parable's intended effect up front? You know, is Luke like that friend who always wants to tell you the end of the movie before you get to see it? You know, maybe you're that friend. Um, I have one of those friends in mind. I I love him, but he always wants to tell me the end before I even get to see it. Uh, We all have those special friends. Well, Luke's not doing that in this parable. Uh, This is no spoiler that Luke is doing here. Uh, This preemptive move, it actually serves the reader. It serves us. It builds anticipation. Really, in, Luke, in, in verse 1, Luke's already pastoring his readers. Verse 1 is meant to convince us of the parable's benefit. Luke is drawing his readers near and saying to them, Now listen, Jesus is about to teach you and me why we ought always to pray, why we must not lose heart. You know how hard this can be, so listen up. He wants our attention because he cares about our hearts. Think about the author of this gospel. He walked with those who walked with Jesus. He traveled closely with Paul. And by the time Luke wrote this gospel account, he knew the suffering that Paul had gone through. He knew well the trials that test our faith. And he wants us to see that there's something in this parable that's going to convince us to endure to go on praying. And so as we have this kind of invaluable, divinely inspired insight, now we're ready to be introduced to the two main characters of this parable. Look again with me. First, we see that there is a judge. A judge who neither feared God nor respected man. What an ironic description of a man who's been positioned uh, to bring about just results in people's lives. He neither fears God nor respects man. How would you like that guy to be your judge, your advocate? Um, No fear of God, no sense that is that he's under another's authority. No need to consult God, no need to pray. He does not fear the one perfect judge who he is supposed to reflect. Nor did he respect man. He didn't take into account the humanity of those around him that the people appealing for his help often faced great need, need for deliverance. This was his reputation, corrupt, unconcerned. You, you might be wondering, how did this guy get past human resources? And I don't know the answer for you, but uh, in Jesus' words, he was the unrighteous judge. And if this irony weren't so painful, it might be humorous. But into this judge's daily life 
comes a widow from this city, a widow he would not be able to soon forget. Now let's think about her situation. As a widow, she knew suffering, suffering of profound loss. She had lost her spouse. On top of that, she's vulnerable in this day and age. She incurred the financial hardship of losing her provider. Add to that, now she has an adversary that we don't know much about, but an adversary that is so great, she's traveling to this judge. This adversary is wronging her, maybe threatening her, lacking status, lacking provision, lacking protection. She comes alone to the city's advocate. She comes with this one appeal, give me justice against my adversary. And notice there in verse 3, she kept coming to him. It's impressive that she keeps coming. But why does she have to keep coming? Well, she has to keep coming because sadly her advocate is no advocate for her at all. He's an unrighteous judge. She is alone in this world of loss, a world of adversaries. She's vulnerable. Somebody's wronging her. She needs protection. And the one who could be her advocate, he simply doesn't care. No regard for her. And his indifference must only deepen her sense of agony. What grief the woman of this parable is experiencing. And yet, she is the persistent widow who will not relent. She kept coming. His response, for a while he refused. Most likely because he is absolutely unconcerned about her life. She wanted deliverance. He craved ease. She was resolved. She had conviction. He was pathetic. This collision of character and desires produced a somewhat surprising, even humorous result. Do you remember what happened? The unrighteous judge finally cried his own appeal for deliverance, proclaiming, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. What a righteous motive he has. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In essence, he says, enough already. I cannot take this anymore. She keeps bothering me. A pathetic reason for a right ruling, but a right ruling nonetheless. Jesus here is commending the widow, her relentless commitment to pursue deliverance, deliverance from her adversary. She is clearly worth emulating. But what about the judge? Look at these words in verse 6. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God, let me pause this there, will not God, will not God, God is introduced. We need, like the disciples needed, the introduction of God into our world of difficulties. But what is Jesus doing here? Is he linking the unrighteous judge and God, the judge of all humanity? Jesus, let me be clear, has no intention of linking their attitudes. This actually is a study for us in contrast. The unrighteous judge with the altogether different righteous God. From the lesser judge, we move 
to the greater, from the flawed human. We move now to the divine. From the parable now, Jesus transitions his disciples to reality and will not God. These two portraits of the widow, persistent widow, and the unrighteous judge are more than some good storytelling by Jesus. They were preparing the stage for real-life characters, the real-life characters of the church and her God. The widow points us to the church struggling through the fallen world that we live in. This widow represents believers of every age experiencing adversity and suffering, battling our adversaries. And the unrighteous judge, well, he gives way to a perfect judge. The unrighteous judge gives way to our unfailing advocate, our Lord and God. And so Jesus wants his disciples to consider the real adversaries that they will experience in this fallen world. Who are these real adversaries that are up against the church in every age? Well, actually, the Bible teaches that believers have many fierce adversaries waging war upon our souls. But uh, consider, if you will, the big three that the Bible warns us of again and again. Our first foe would be the world. Now, when I say that, I don't mean it's people per se, but all the subtle and overt lies that this world holds out to you and me. The lying world is our adversary because it entices us away from a life of faith. Maybe you've felt that recently. Enticements to pull away from God, to chase after the things of this world. This world is on a course to make much of itself, to live out a lie that God is not real, to impress you, to impress upon you that you are your own master and that it's here and now that you are to live for riches, fame at all costs. Have you seen this adversary? Surely you have seen and experienced this adversary. Our second enemy, foe number two, partners with the world. This is the enemy that biblical writers refer to as the flesh. What does the Bible mean when it talks about the flesh? Well, that is our sinful desires, which apart from Christ would certainly rule over us, and they have for each of us ruled over us apart from Christ. But now in Christ, he has defeated sin's reign over our lives, and yet we know that we still have this internal struggle with sin, don't we? Indwelling sin still remains. It's an adversary that nags us to turn back to our former way of living, a life of self, immediate gratification, a life that leads ultimately only to disillusionment and spiritual death. Surely you've seen this adversary. In the face of such adversaries, uh, I've been tempted to lose heart at times. I'm sure you've been tempted to lose heart. And then behind both of these, as if they were not enough, lurks our ultimate adversary, the devil. Peter, who was one of the original recipients of this parable who heard it live, he warned us, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, Peter says. An adversary looking to pounce upon the suffering believer. And I think so often of how the, the devil seeks to kind of walk around the gates of the church, so to say, and look for those who would be easy to discourage, easy to pick off, easy to tempt, easy to accuse. He is the accuser. And that's why the church needs to stay together. That's why God's word tells us again and again, 
Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near because we have real enemies in this fallen world and we need, we need the grace that comes in the church. And Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil or from the evil one. We have real enemies, don't we? Serious enemies. And add to these enemies the adversities that we experience of suffering and sickness, injustice at the hands of others. What a Savior we need. We need a great Savior, someone who we can go to, who will be for us a true advocate, who will protect us, who will be a mighty deliverer, a true Savior in this fallen world. And Jesus wants to convince his disciples to be certain that in God and in God alone, they have such an advocate, such a protector, such a mighty deliverer, such a true savior. And so to drive this home, note what Jesus begins to do. He asks the disciples a series of questions, penetrating questions that are designed to get them thinking penetrating questions designed to reveal how our God relates to us in the midst of trouble. So let's explore the significance of these three questions that Jesus asks. With each of these questions, I think the Lord is is desiring to build certain convictions into the lives of his disciples. Beginning in verse 7, he asks, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? What do we see in this first question? Well, we see that God intends to give justice to his elect. I think so often we, we don't think about this category of justice, but it's big to God. God is a righteous judge, and he wants to promise us, to assure us that he intends to give justice to his children. Do you hear how God describes his disciples in this question? Do you hear whom these disciples belong to? They belong to God, and they belong to God because they are his elect. Those are profound words. Those are sometimes at first glance difficult words, troubling words, but they are meant to be words of great comfort to us. If God is your advocate, it is because he chose you from eternity past. He loves you. He chose you to be his And instead of ignoring us when we come to him, God relates to us personally as those whom he has already set his love upon and made to be his own through Jesus. What implications this has for us when we face trials? The father did not set his electing love on those disciples or us only to lose us to our adversaries. No, he he did not send his son to redeem us from sin, only to lose us to the adversaries of this world. And so the conviction that God wants to build in us through this parable is that God's salvation of our lives is a personal salvation. His election means that our salvation is very personal. How does he show this personal love to his elect? He shows them justice. Now I'm guessing justice is not many of us want to hear in this parable. Maybe you're hoping, will not God give mercy, grace, love? Why is it good news that it's justice that we're going to receive? Well, do you see in this context, in the life of the widow, that it's justice that she needed? 
She needed to be rescued from adversaries. And that is, as believers, what we need. When God saves us, he doesn't leave us alone in a world of adversaries. God's justice is God's sure salvation from all the sin of this world, all the lies of this world, all the effects of sin around us. God has a commitment to show us justice in his ongoing commitment to save us and deliver us to himself. So let me ask you, are you persevering in prayer through your struggle with adversaries in a fallen world? If not, maybe you've forgotten how personal God's salvation of your life is, how much he cares for you in particular. God is not indifferent. When God's children come to him in prayer, he hears and acts. In your struggle to resist your adversaries, God is attentive. I love the uh, prayer in Psalm 116 where the psalmist says, I love the Lord my God because he hears my prayer, my, my plea for mercy he attends to. Have you known what it's like to cry out to God? It's a sweet pain, isn't it? But God hears your prayers. And your enemies, well, they're his foremost enemies. More than our enemies, they're his. The rebellion of this world, our remaining sin, our chief adversary, the devil, He will execute perfect justice on our behalf. His salvation is personal. And as we've seen in the cross, it has and it will triumph. So Jesus' first question encounters our fearful questions. Will God forget me in my trial? The disciples know the correct theological answer, but when when difficulties set in, when doubts come and they are about to come to these men, We can be tempted to lose heart. Don't doubt his personal love for you. He will surely save you. And while we wait, let's make sure we fit the description of the saints in this passage who cry out to him day and night. The language of verse 7, it paints a picture of longing, persevering, shouting, crying out, crying to him knowing that his particular love that he has set upon us as children is proof that he will deliver us out of these lesser difficulties. He will surely act. Remember the purpose of this parable. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always to pray. Day and night. Always to pray. Because he will not forget his elect. God's salvation is sure. We have every reason to persevere in prayer. So how would you answer the Savior's first question? Will not God give justice to his elect? To answer it rightly, consider his personal love for you. The Savior asks a second question to adjust our sense of timing. Will he delay long over them? What do we see from the second question? I think the Lord is intending to forge into his disciples a conviction that God's salvation is Sure. It's not only personal, it's sure. Have you ever had to ask, how much longer are we going to have to endure this? Have you ever had to ask that question? That's the agony of prolonged suffering. Jesus asks, will he delay long over them? Now, we're street smart enough to know the right answer to this question, all right? But honestly, it sure feels like divine delay from our vantage point, doesn't it? It sure feels like the wait sometimes is just too much for us to endure. Who likes waiting? You know, we, 
We have no category of restaurants around us advertising, we'll keep you waiting. Come on in. We don't swerve into the lane that promises long delays. No, we have, we have fast food for our sweet tea. We have easy passes for our toll roads. We have ATMs for our instant cash. We now have Keurig coffee because brewing a pot simply takes too long. Nowadays, even microwaves feel long. Hmm, what should I do while I wait? Uh, we, we tend to be a very impatient people. Uh, we don't know instinctively how to wait, probably our generation more than any other before it. And waiting through suffering, it can be truly agonizing. Waiting to hear if it's actually a miscarriage. Waiting to hear if it's truly cancer. Waiting for a wayward child or friend. Waiting for a good thing like marriage. Waiting for a just result. Waiting ultimately for heaven. When will God answer me? When will he deliver me? When the answer hasn't yet come or the deliverance out of trouble is not yet complete, Jesus says we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why? How can he say this? Because he will, in his timing, save us, save you, save me out of our trouble. And what seems painfully slow to you will come at the right time. Jesus is even so bold as to use the word speedily. What an adjustment that is to our timetable. Think about when you've gone through adversity and then when deliverance has come. The sweet rescue out of your troubles. You're able to relate somewhat with that word speedily. It's in God's perfect timing. Jesus says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So God's salvation is not only personal, it is sure. It is promised. It is guaranteed. And this will be abundantly clear on the day day that he delivers us ultimately on the day of his return. And we're going to see in just a, a minute, he uses the phrase, the son of man, that phrase used in the book of Daniel that speaks of the end times when God will come and deliver once and for all. It's very intentional that he uses the language, the Son of Man of himself. In the meantime, as we wait for his speedy delivery, we are reminded that as sweet as deliverance now could be, what we need most is him. What we need most is Jesus. Don't allow your understanding of God to be informed first and foremost by your circumstances. Isn't that the temptation we all experience is to look around and to see a horizon that is fraught with difficulties and say it's it's based on these that I'm going to judge God. It's based on these that I'm going to discern what kind of character God has. Trials are disorienting. Trials can be disillusioning. In the midst of trials, we need to look up from our circumstances. We need to look to God. We need to look to his word, which has been given to us for the very purpose that we might know him and know him rightly and be able to see our way through our circumstances. So let us be a people that go to his word and that pray his word. Pray prayers like Psalm 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. 
For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Pray prayers like Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He is not distant. He has come near. Pray prayers in light of the truth of 1 Peter 4.19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That was written by Peter who heard these words, who went through adversity of a degree that we will likely never know and pastored people through such adversity. And he said, let those who suffer according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God is not unfaithful, but we need a biblically informed theology of what to do in our waiting. We need to understand what God intends for us in our waiting, one that produces faith-filled prayerfulness in the midst of adversity. In your waiting, what you need to remember is that despite what you see, God is working. God is at work in you. God is at work through you. And God is at work to reveal himself. One of the things that God is doing is he's forging a faith in you that's of a degree and of a constitution that you would not know without adversity. He wants you to have a faith that leans on something far more trustworthy than circumstances that are like shifting sands. Paul Tripp has said, your motivation to continue is only as strong as what you have placed your hope in. Perhaps this is why we so easily lose heart in the face of obstacles, opposition, or difficulty. Your motivation, my motivation, is only as strong as what you have placed your hope in. So what have you placed your hope in? Who have you placed your hope in? Waiting forces us to ask that question. Think of Psalm 27. I know you all have been going through the Psalms. The Psalms are sweet places to go and to pray from. It commands us to wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We wait for someone whose salvation is sure. He's worth waiting for. He's worth hoping in. He's worth trusting in. Friends, because God's salvation is sure, we have every reason to keep praying and not lose heart. Jesus asks a final question. This one is meant to teach us, to provoke us, to correct us, to stir us, to always pray and not lose heart. Look with me at verse 8. He says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What an amazing question. Here Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, but he already has that day when he will break through into time and space to deliver us out of this fallen world. But he wants to know of his disciples, when that day comes, when I return, will I find faith on earth? Now, why does he ask this question? It's helpful to consider, what does he mean by find faith? Now, we need to know that Jesus is confident that he's going to find believers when he returns. He's the one who elects. And because of God's sovereign grace and through his word, we know that there will be a remnant when Jesus returns. He's the God who saves in every generation. And he has always promised a remnant of believers. Jesus has declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. 
He's not asking if there will be a church when he returns. But what will be the quality of the church's faith? And that question is meant to send us reflecting before God. How is my faith before you, Lord? See, here's what this question impresses upon us. This conviction that God wants to forge in us is that God's salvation of us, while sure and while personal, it entails a stewardship. We are saved by grace. Jesus is not introducing a salvation of works here. We are saved by grace through faith, for sure. But in response to grace and fueled by grace, we steward the gift of faith. We steward it because this, this faith that we have, it's temporary. But it's infinitely valuable in the Lord's sight. One day we shall look upon Christ face to face. We shall see him as we sang about this morning as he is. But in the meantime, we know from the writer of Hebrews that it's an invaluable faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the preview to sight. It's assurance. It's conviction. It's not built on emotion. It's not built on circumstance. It's not impersonal. It's personal and sure, and it's based on the unchanging reality of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Faith looks to Christ. And one sweet day soon to come, it's going to surrender its place to its superior sight. And we will see Jesus as He is. And so until then, there's a call upon us to steward the gift of faith. It's immeasurably valuable. And the faith that Jesus speaks of here in this passage, it's a watchfulness. It's a confidence. It's a quality of believing that is not shaken in the midst of storms. How do we cultivate such a sturdy faith as we wait on the Lord? Let me close with just a few recommendations. Three recommendations. In these days of waiting... Grace Church, I want to encourage you, cultivate faith through God's promises. Be a people who go again and again and again to the Word of God. Don't tire of going to the Word of God. If you need, if you need your soul strengthened if you, with reminders of how invaluable the Word of God is, can I tell you, go to Psalm 19 and read through the descriptions of, of the Word of God and what it does to the life of the believer. Go to Psalm 119, a slightly longer passage, and spend some time there living in the good of the promises that that psalm reminds us of, of God's word. This is how it's always been for God's people. We've been a people of the word. For Abraham, he walked by faith in the promises of God. It's his promises that enliven our hearts, that stir our affections. We need his voice breaking in to our circumstances and our understanding of what's going on. We are standing on his promises. Will the Son of Man encounter faith when he comes? Yes, he will as we live upon the word of God. Every word, every promise that proceeds from the mouth of God. So be the people who cry to him day and night, cry his promises back to him. Let's go to the word. Second recommendation, more specifically, in these days of waiting, we cultivate faith by returning again and again and again to the gospel. 
It's not a mere slogan that we are gospel-centered. I know that we can use that phrase often, and we have to guard against its losing its meaning to us. It's biblical. We were never meant to gaze inward for hope. We were never meant to look upon our circumstances primarily for hope. We are to look again and again at this Son of Man, this one headed to Jerusalem, this one who through his life and his death on the cross, his resurrection and his reign this day and forever for our deliverance. It's at Calvary where we see the depths of mercy that are ours in Christ and our faith is enlivened. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. So let us be his elect who cry to him day and night, his promises and specifically the promises of the gospel. Lastly, in these days of waiting, I want to encourage you, cultivate a faith through linking arms with fellow brothers and sisters in your local church. Jesus wasn't providing one-on-one counsel here, was he? He was speaking to his disciples, the 12. He was talking with them. This, this was the precursor to the church. Soon, there would be a people forming known as the church. In Acts, they modeled again and again and again, gathering together, waiting on God, gathering to pray and to live by faith together. Even when persecution came and they were sent out, forced out into surrounding areas, churches then were formed where believers got together and they applied passages like this to not lose heart in the midst of adversity. They modeled waiting on God, gathering to pray, gathering together. You are a local church loved by God. And as you gather together this morning, anticipate that there are going to be more coming through these doors in the days, weeks, months to come. I want to encourage you, look for ways to gather together and pray. I was so encouraged as I was talking to the men this morning. They told me about your plans for this Thursday night to gather together for the express purpose to pray, to pray for your Christmas service coming up. I want to encourage you, be that kind of church that perseveres in prayer. Grace Church of Clarksburg, you are standing on his promises. You are standing in the good of the gospel of grace. You have been given the immeasurable gift of faith in Jesus Christ. And as you wait through various trials and in this long wait for heaven, God will deliver you. In light of our great salvation, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your sovereignty you had your son teach the disciples this parable. And you in your sovereignty had Luke pen this parable that we some 2,000 years later might be encouraged and instructed by this parable. Oh Lord, I pray that you would make Grace Church a people who always pray and not lose heart, a people who persevere in prayer. And Lord, I lift up in particular those who are acutely aware this morning of difficulty, maybe who feel like they've almost stumbled in this morning, who barely made it because of prolonged suffering. God, would you encourage them this morning that they are not alone in their adversity, that you are with them, that you are a God whose salvation is so personal that you call them by name. 
It's so sure that you tell us, if you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, will you not also along with him graciously give us all things? You will. God, your salvation is personal. It's sure. And we look forward to that ultimate day when we will be rescued out of this life and we'll see you face to face. Father, until that day, keep us praying. Father, keep us laboring together in the cause of the gospel, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.